Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's President's Day, Monday, February 19th. The war in the Middle East is now 136 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. I was hoping to share some major news with you this morning. Israeli social media was buzzing last night with photos of what might have been a blindfolded Yahya Sinwar in Israeli custody. Well, it wasn't Sinwar. But just so you know, we were ready to tear up the entire script this morning if the news bore out, because that's what we do here at the FDD Morning Brief, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So keep tuning in. Well, because it's President's Day today, we're going to be hearing from FDD's founder and president, Clifford May, a recovering New York Times journalist with incredible stories from his travels all over the globe. Cliff founded FDD more than 20 years ago. He's, been, he's built a dynamic team of scholars and practitioners committed to fighting the good fight every single day. But before we speak to FDD's supreme leader, let's talk about this latest push for a Palestinian state. The international calls for a Palestinian state right now in the wake of a mass slaughter carried out by Hamas strike me as downright bananas. I get that folks want a viable alternative to Hamas, and I get that they are desperate for a government that can manage Gaza after the war ends. So before I, cold, I pour cold water on this latest initiative, let me underscore something that I've said many times before. There is nothing wrong with Palestinian nationalism or any other nationalism for that matter. People seeking a state for their national project, kosher. What's not kosher? A political culture that celebrates violence and dehumanizes the other. Unfortunately, this was the culture deliberately developed by PLO chief Yasser Arafat during the formative years of the Palestinian nationalist movement. Arafat died in 2004. His successor is perhaps a tad more pragmatic, but Mahmoud Abbas, also known as Abu Mazen, doles out cash to terrorists who pay Israelis. He doles out cash to their families too. We call it pay for slay here in Washington. It's essentially social security for psychopaths. Abbas is also insanely corrupt with his sons and his cronies having pocketed untold millions of dollars in US taxpayer and other funds. Today, Abu Mazen is 88 years old. He's no spring chicken and he refuses to hold elections since taking office in 2005. Does this sound like a guy ready to take over one of the greatest reconstruction challenges of the last century? Right. Let's say for the sake of argument that two states is our final destination. If we do that, let's also acknowledge that the Palestinian arena is currently a dumpster fire. We're a long way from two states for two people. That all said, Israel needs to acknowledge that the world wants this, and this means they have to stop saying no every time. But the United States, the Europeans, and the pragmatic Arab states, they need to come up with something viable, something different, because right now, if a Palestinian state were, be de were to be declared, it would be a state of failure. Okay, now for your headlines. On Saturday, at a conference in Germany, the Qatari prime minister called for a ceasefire in Gaza without the release of Israeli hostages. There you have it, folks. The mask has fallen. After four months of pretending to work for the release of Israeli hostages held by a terrorist group that the Qatari regime 
funds and shelters in Doha, the government finally admits that the hostages are not their priority. Rather, this terror-sponsoring state wants to see its Hamas clients survive to fight another day in Gaza. Interestingly, the Qatari uh, government is now taking shots at Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is calling out the Qataris for failing to deliver the hostages. Oh, by the way, reports this weekend suggest that the situation in Afghanistan is getting worse with a resurgence of al-Qaeda in the country. Guess which regime brokered the American withdrawal from Afghanistan two years ago? Guess which regime gave the Taliban a headquarters on their soil? Guess which regime paved the way for al-Qaeda's return? Wait for it. Okay, fine. It was Qatar. Washington needs to wake up to the fact that this regime is not a friend. Headline two, Israel's national air carrier reported a cyber attack on one of its planes this weekend. Here's what we know. An El Al aircraft heading to Israel from Thailand experienced a breach of its communication systems. Officials say that it occurred somewhere near Yemen, implying that perhaps the Houthis were involved. Of course, it also could have been the Iranians. The regime has significant cyber capabilities and operating from a war-torn country like Yemen could offer some plausible deniability. For those keeping score at home, cyber is just another front in the wider war being waged by Iran. Let's count those fronts, shall we? Here's what I've got. Gaza, West Bank, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, Jordan, Maritime, Economic, and Cyber. That would be 10 fronts, I think. Math was never my strong suit, but bottom line, there needs to be a response here. If not, the Iranian aggression will keep coming across all of those domains and maybe more. Finally, headline three, Brazil's president just compared Israel to the Nazis and the Gaza war to the Holocaust. Obviously, this went over like a lead balloon in Israel. Lula's vitriol stands in stark contrast to Argentina's president who just visited Israel and conveyed a message of unwavering support. Unfortunately, Lula's message is much more widely embraced by the global south, as we call it. Here's the thing about Lula. He was head of state from 2003 to 2010. On his way out, the last time around, he devised a plan with Mahmoud Abbas to push for Palestinian statehood without a peace agreement with Israel. A few years later, Lula was indicted for corruption. I'm not saying the two were connected, but I will say this about world leaders when they come back for another term. Their policies often don't change for the better. Okay, it's now my pleasure to introduce FDD's Supreme Leader. More than two decades after he founded one of Washington's most dynamic think tanks, Cliff May today is still standing at the helm. He's also a columnist for the Washington Times and host of FDD's flagship podcast, Cleverly Lamed, cleverly named foreign policy. We're tickled pink that he's joined us today. Welcome, Cliff. Good to be with you, John. Watched uh, a long time viewer, first time guest. <laughs> well, welcome <laughs> to your first time. I promise to be easy on you. Um, and, and here's your softball question, just to get our our listeners and viewers up to speed. I want to ask you just about FDD for our viewers and listeners out there. Tell us for a minute about what drove you to found FDD more than 20 years ago. Sure. Well, the short version is that about, and this is an interesting part, about a week before the attacks of 9-11, not after, before, I had a conversation with a former diplomat, Jean Kirkpatrick. Some of your viewers, listeners may remember her and a former politician, Jack Kemp, also a wonderful individual. I knew both from my years as a journalist. They were persuaded that America was taking a holiday from history, a premature peace dividend. Yes, the Soviet Union had collapsed. 
But was it true that America didn't have any enemies anymore? Who bombed American peacekeepers in Lebanon in 1983? Who bombed the World Trade Towers for the first time in, uh, in 1993? What about Kobar Towers in 1996? Uh, the American embassies in Africa in 98, the USS Coal off Yemen in 2000. So they asked me to do some research and to see if anyone was connecting the dots, if people in positions of power were being educated about what was going on, if there, if policy options were being constructed and considered. Uh, my initial research suggested that none of that was being done. But before I had completed that research, the attacks of 9-11 took place. So what Jack Kemp and, and Gene Kirkpatrick had anticipated and feared came to pass. And we talked about it. And essentially, they asked me to drop everything else I was doing, quit my job, and see if I could construct an organization committed to this mission. And you have, and we're thankful for that. Um, so let's talk about the three embattled democracies that FDD defends right now. There are, of course, others beyond that, but the three big ones that we talk about. Which ones are they, and how are these fronts interconnected, in your view? So, the, yes, there are three. There's Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin wants to subjugate the Ukrainians. Uh, there's Taiwan. Xi Jinping wants to subjugate the Taiwanese. Uh, and then there's Israel. Ali Khamenei and his proxies, they don't want to subjugate the Israelis. They want to exterminate the Israelis. So it's a little bit different. Uh, th these are all free and democratic societies. They're all American allies. Uh, I believe, FTD believes, it's essential that, that, that we support them in their struggles to, to survive. Yeah, and that's what we do every day. All right, well, let me ask you to just drill down on Iran for a minute here. You actually reported out of Iran during the revolution in 1979, one of my favorite stories that you've conveyed over the years. Can you share a bit about that for our listeners and viewers, and then maybe talk about the lessons that you learned that are still applicable today? Yeah, I mean, people talk and did then about the Iranian revolution. It wasn't an Iranian revolution. It was an Islamic revolution. And it created the first modern nation state committed to a jihad against the West and the restoration of a powerful Islamic empire. Uh, it was a Shia and Persian revolution, but in, it also interestingly galvanized Sunni Arabs. The Sunni Arabs, or some of them, I should say, said, okay, where's our state committed to jihad? It was supposed to be Saudi Arabia, but the royals are having... Too much fun skiing in Saint Moritz, shopping in Paris, and drinking whiskey with their infidel buddies in Washington. And from that seed, Al Qaeda grew. Um, I'll stop there, but if you have questions, I'll be glad to go on. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, today, obviously, we continue to focus on the Iranians as the primary threat. But um, if they didn't, when we began, we say at the beginning that we were walking on the Sunni side of the street. But we soon, you and I and, and Mark Dubowitz, we soon realized the importance of, of the Islamic Republic of Iran as a revolutionary state and what it was doing in the world. Absolutely. And now we see all of these different militias and terrorist groups that the Iranians are wielding, making a mess out of the Middle East, which is what we track here every day. Um, but let's track uh, over to Russia for a minute. There's a lot of news there lately between the satellite weapons that were being reported, Alexei Navalny's death, the advances in Ukraine. There's a lot we could talk about here. And you're, of course, the chair of FDD's Russia program. 
And you speak Russian. Uh, and in fact, you went to the same school as Vladimir Putin as at the like same time. <laughs> right. So, I mean, without giving any secrets away about how, you know Vladimir Putin and, and what he did in college, I mean, what is Russia's end game right now? What are they up to, and and how does that intersect with what we're watching in the Middle East? Yeah, I, I mean, John, I've argued for years that Vladimir Putin sees himself conceives himself as the czar, and the czars he particularly has in mind are Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great. Uh, though Stalin's in some ways, too, he was in a way a, a czar. And look, in good times, it's the mission of a czar to expand the empire. In bad times, it's the mission of a czar to restore the empire. And so Putin is adamant. He wants Ukraine. And I got to tell you, my belief is if he succeeds there, he won't be satisfied. He won't retire or he won't open a yoga studio. He'll want to take back other former possessions uh, of the Russian and Soviet empires. And in pursuit of its ambitions, he needs to weaken America and to collapse the American-led international order that was constructed after World War II. So he's now in an alliance, in an axis, if you will, with Xi Jinping, with Ali Khamenei, and Kim Jong-un, who also want to turn America into a has-been superpower and who want to restructure the international order to suit them. I got to say, John, just a word about Alexei Navalny. He was Russia's most important dissident an opposition leader. I, I don't see anyone rising to his stature in the foreseeable future. I don't think it will it can happen. Um, it just very quickly in August 2020, he was poisoned, I think undoubtedly by Putin's agents. Uh, he got out of the country. His friends took him to a Berlin where the doctors saved him and said that he had indeed been poisoned by a a military grade nerve agent that you don't get in just any Russian pharmacy. In January of 2021, he, he had recovered and he voluntarily returned to Russia. Uh, it was incredibly brave. It may not have been wise. He was immediately arrested. Last Thursday, he was filmed in a courtroom in a Siberian penal colony. He seemed in good health, he, even good spirits. He was joking with the judge. On Friday, he very suddenly dropped dead. I think Putin is telling us not for the first time, that there are no red lines he can't cross. And I, this is also one important point. I want to, Putin's relations with the regime in Tehran have been growing. He is now receiving battlefield support from Tehran, including drones. And since October 7th, he stepped up his diplomatic support of Tehran's proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. So, okay, a lot to unpack there, but let, let me just pull on one thread. Talking about those red lines that Putin is not afraid to cross. And of course, Biden has warned that if anything happened to Navalny, that there would be a price to pay. So we talk a lot about American leadership here at FTD. And I guess my question is, have we seen the kind of leadership that is required during these perilous times? I'm not only talking here about President Biden, although maybe you know we could focus on him a bit, but there is enough bipartisan criticism to go around, isn't there? Yeah, I I mean, I, I, I can be frank. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid America does not have the caliber of leaders America needs in these very, very perilous times. And I really think they are. I think they're way more perilous uh, than than the Cold War. And we're and we're not responding that as, as though that's the case. And they may be as perilous as, say, the 1930s. 
part of what happened is that you know after world look after world war ii and exhausted britain which had been very major power in the world passed the leadership torch to the u.s if we the u.s is now exhausted some a lot of you americans probably are to whom do we pass the torch i mean there are good nations but they're not strong enough and there are strong nations but they're not good enough so I think we have a very, very perilous period ahead. And I think, and I think FDD has long thought, much as we may not want it, American American leadership, there, there's no substitute for it in the world right now. We kind of need to brush ourselves off, have a cup of coffee, and, and get and to mix metaphors, get back on our horse. Okay, coffee on a horse. Um, <laughs> Uh, let me let me ask you. I mean, we always talk to you, Cliff, uh, about strategic communications. You're our go-to guy on this. A lot of people have uh, asked me and complained, actually, perhaps not surprisingly, about Israel's communications challenges during this current war since October seventh. Um, and it's the same as we see in every other war, right? That the Israelis have their challenges. Why is it always so tough, in your opinion, for Israel to convey its narrative and for that narrative to rise up above the others? Well, the, the most fundamental reason is the rules that apply to other nations don't apply to Israelis. You know, Israel's not an Arab state. A lot of them, there are more than 20. It's not an Islamic state. There's probably 50. It's the world's one and only Jewish state. And I, and I should remind listeners, they should know, the more than 20% of Israelis who are not Jewish enjoy more freedoms and more rights than do minorities, or majorities for that matter, anywhere else in the Middle East or North Africa. Um, but the rules are different. The, the UN has become structurally anti-Israel, uh, as are many of the lavishly funded, well, I think, fake human rights organizations out there. Uh, the so-called international community, and I think that's a that's a misnomer, but leave that aside, does not and will not treat Israel fairly. Are the ways that Israeli spokesmen and spokeswomen can do better? I think so. Should they try and not give up? Absolutely. But it's very important to understand the game is fixed. We've heard that, I think, a few times here on this program. All right. Thank you, Cliff May, for taking time out to join us today. And... Um, Happy President's Day. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Okay, here's what FTD has on tap for you today. First, if you liked hearing from Cliff, let me recommend his podcast, Foreign Policy. Cliff recently recorded a terrific episode with retired Major General Amir Eshel from Israel. He previously served as Director General of Israel's Ministry of Defense. Amir, by the way, is now an FTD senior fellow, and he was one of our first guests here at the Morning Brief. Also in conversation with Cliff was retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, who runs our cyber center here at FDD. The three of them discussed the latest in the war in Gaza, the looming battle in Rafah, and much, much more. So please check that out. FDD's newest research fellow, Tony Bowman, is out with a new piece in the Washington Examiner looking at the campaign of Hamas disinformation and hate in Oakland's K-12 system. She'll be digging deeper into the rot that has spread across America's under-scrutinized primary and secondary education systems. And finally, my colleague Sinan Gidi is out with a new piece highlighting how Turkey is not just a state sponsor of Hamas, but also a state sponsor of the Houthi terror group in Yemen that is harassing commercial ships and U.S. vessels. 
Sinan comes out with, I think, some new information here that's not well known. And he argues that it's long past time for the State Department to stop courting Erdogan and to start holding him and his government to account. That's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org slash invest. Tune in Wednesday for a rather spicy episode of the FDD Morning Brief. My guest will be John Spencer, the military analyst whose work on civilian casualties in Gaza has garnered a lot of attention. Spoiler, Hamas apologists don't like what he has to say, so you'll definitely want to tune in. Until then... I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD.